Yes, my name is Bond. James Bond. Welcome to Now Playing's James Bond Retrospective Series. I hope we're going to have some gratuitous sex and violence. I certainly hope so, too. Celebrating the 50th anniversary of Bond in films, Arnie, Stuart, and Brock will be watching and reviewing every James Bond film, ending with this year's newest Bond film, Skyfall. Do you expect me to talk? No, Mr. Bond, I expect you to die. Be warned. Now playing has a license to spoil and use mild adult language. The Americans are going to be none too pleased about this. Listener discretion is advised. What, no small talk? No chit-chat? Today we're talking about The Man with the Golden Gun. Starring Roger Moore, Christopher Lee, Britt Eklund, Maud Adam, Hervé Villachez, Clifton James, Bernard Lee, and directed by Guy Hamilton. This is Brock, James Brock, co-host of Now Playing. Stuart in L.A. And this is Arnie, The Man with the Golden Mike. Funny thing about The Man with the Golden Gun is that this was the last book written by Ian Fleming. It was released posthumously, and they've been wanting to make this one for many, many years because it was so popular as a book, and Live and Let Die was so popular, or so they thought, so they decided to rush this one into production, and it's the first time since the beginning of Sean Connery that we get two consecutive years with James Bond films, and they rushed out The Man with the Golden Gun. So when you say Live and Let Die was so popular, or though they thought, does that mean they had high expectations and it flopped? It was one of the more successful Bonds at the time, but since they had to do a quick turnaround to get the pre-production started on this one, so they saw the early returns on it. But reviews were mixed for Live and Let Die from both fans and critics. Even though it did make some money, you got to figure that the curiosity factor contributed to the high box office at the time for Live and Let Die. The curiosity being Roger Moore in the role. Well, it's interesting that the book was so popular. My memory of Golden Guns, they were not strong, but what I know about it is that this is the one that people like to dog on. Bond fans that I've talked to say this is the one that, you know, should be killed. And really, I came into this one with a healthy dose of skepticism. I didn't know what I was going to get. All I knew going into this one was... They're ripping off Goldfinger. He had a golden gun. If it's not the return of Goldfinger, they're doing something lame. <laughs> but then as we got into the movie, I'm like, oh, it's the one with Tattoo! I, I knew we'd get to Tattoo eventually, but I didn't. You know, if you'd asked me, is Tattoo part of James Bond? I don't know if I would have said yes or no. But the recall, seeing him on screen, I was there. I was happy. Da plane, da plane. I'm happy to be here. Yeah, I, as soon as the, I got into the movie, it all came rushing back. But I didn't, going into it, know much from my 25 years ago watching it. This, again, is not one that I have gone back to a lot. I have not watched this movie since I bought the movie on videotape back in the mid-90s when I was buying all the movies. Videotape? VHS? Yeah, I bought all the movies on VHS in the 90s. Oof. bought them out of order, and this is one of the last ones I bought. I put it on my shelf and didn't pick it up after again. <laughs> I think I can read where Brock's recommend is going to go. Do we even need to do recommend? I hear you loud and clear. <laughs> last one I bought, never watched since. I get it, all right. We'll call it James Bond Requiem. I get you. I feel you. <laughs> all right, Arnie. Well, let's tell them what's so bad. Give them the buck. 
Well, James Bond is in trouble. Francisco Scaramanga, the world's foremost assassin, has sent a bullet to MI6 with 007 engraved on it, a sign that Bond is to be his next target. M pulls Bond off duty, but Bond goes on the attack, seeking out the assassin whose face was unknown, but it was known he had three nipples and a gun made of gold. And it turns out the bullet was a ruse sent by Andrea Anders, Scaramanga's lover. She wants to be free of the assassin, but fears for her life and hoped the bullet would cause 007 to kill Scaramanga. But Bond also discovers Scaramanga has bigger plans. In his investigation, he finds Scaramanga has killed a scientist named Gibson and stolen a Solex Agitator, a device that, no, it's not a flex capacitor, it doesn't allow time control, but it does allow a solar power station to operate with enough power to make fossil fuels obsolete and fire superpowered lasers. And he's the bad guy? I think Obama would buy this off of him. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my god. Andrea is killed and Bond teams with British agent Mary Goodnight investigating in Bangkok and China before arriving on Scaramanga's private island run by housemate and henchman Nick Knack, played by Hervé Villages. (laughs) Both Bond and Goodnight are captured and Scaramanga wants a duel against the agent in his crazy funhouse and the duel occurs and, of course, Bond wins and also grabs the Solex before Goodnight's misfortune and big ass almost caused the island to explode. And then Bond and Mary have a good night as credits roll. Okay, before we get into the movie, before we talk about one single thing about the movie, I need to talk about this. Three nipples. <laughs> Does this exist? I mean, I've seen Star Trek V. I saw Total Recall. I know in the movies it exists, but I had to ask, is there any scientific basis for this being real? Because this sounded like bull. Strangely enough, I used to listen to a podcast called The Body Odd by MSNBC. It is no longer a podcast where they would talk about strange things like why you have a shudder when you're done with urination and third nipples. Yes, it is real. Yeah, according to Wiki, it's called supernumerary nipple. There's a scientific term and some of our current celebrities have them. Marky Mark has a third nipple. Really? I have seen it. You can Google this. I'm sure you're going there now. I was disappointed. It is not like Scaramanga's nipple. It doesn't have an areola. It's a mole. Essentially, it's a little mole, and they call it a nipple. I was very disappointed. But Carrie Underwood, the country singer, Marky Mark. I remember it as a gag in Kevin Smith's Mallrats, where Joyce DeWitt, Janet from Three's Company, pulls out her titties and has a third nipple on him, and it turns out to be chewing gum. It's also Chandler Bing has the nubbin on Friends. Yep, yep, nubbin. I didn't know about this, but again, I think that commonly it does not come across as it does in this movie. It doesn't look like a third tit. It is just like a little bump that you might have on your torso. But I needed to know, because this movie is dealing in all kinds of crazy, and I just had to call this out from the get-go. Isn't it supposed to be a sign of virility? If it is, why does Christopher Lee have it? Death warmed over (laughs) is our bad guy this time. Christopher Lee is at the start of the gun barrel sequence. We don't get James Bond again. We get instead... Scaramanga in his lair of doom, beckoning a mobster who I think is a goon from Diamonds Are Forever. Correct. He's the same actor. And he's also played a goon in everything else he's ever been in. (laughs) But Mm. he definitely was in Diamonds Are Forever. Yeah. With that face. 
Totally. Yeah, this opening sequence with the funhouse, I kind of enjoyed the playfulness of the whole sequence and how they introduced Knickknack and all that jazz. But it really sums up the whole thing to me is it ends with a waxwork of James Bond there to remind us, oh, yeah, it's a Bond movie <laughs> before the theme song comes on. We would never know it's a Bond movie unless they had the uh, gun barrel sequence opening the show. And by the way, we should not only give Lee his golden gun, we should give him his golden headphones, or at least I can, because I have reviewed three different franchises that he's been a part of. You guys haven't, but I did cover Clone Wars, which he did do the voice for, and of course, about five years after making this movie, he fought Red Brown in Captain America 2. Ah, I forgot Clone Wars. I don't know if that's official. Maybe it's Silver Headphones, since that wasn't a retrospective. (laughs) (laughs) I think we need to get to the Howling before he gets the Golden Ones, because I think we'll get to the Howling before either Lord of the Rings or Star Wars. I like Christopher Lee as an actor. I didn't really know him much before Gremlins 2. I didn't discover Hammer Horror stuff until the 90s, but... I've really come to like the gravitas he brings to roles. Anyone who listened to that Captain America review knows that I was really excited to see him there, as I was excited to see him here. After Yafet Koto last time, here, seeing somebody who I know can play a good villain from Star Wars to Lord of the Rings, not to Captain America, I was really hoping that Bond would have a wonderful adversary. Hope being the key word here, as soon as he put on the blue tracksuit, I was a little worried, I gotta say. Christopher Lee is looking a little more Dracula. I mean, he's like 53 years old when he's playing this part. He's not a spring chicken. I didn't recognize him because he was clean-shaven, honestly. It took the voice for me to get tipped off. Yeah, I love this man's voice. Also, for me, he's one of the highlights of this movie. I think he's not on screen a lot, but whenever he's on the screen, I'm enjoying him. It already nailed it. The presence this guy has, he makes up for a lackluster character development in the script by bringing such weight to what he does on the screen. I kind of disagree. I thought he was showing up by Tattoo. I love Tattoo in this. Yes. Hervé Velochez really does earn his rank as being one of the great henchmen. This may not be one of the great Bonds, but I actually really like him. And, you know, we see him at first just sort of as a glorified butler, but then he quickly gets behind the controls, and he's the one that's operating this whole funhouse of death. I don't know what you call this thing. It's sort of his pastime. You know, when you're an assassin and you retire to the beach, I guess you build a room in which you invite mobsters to come and try to kill you and have Hervé Velochez like change the lighting and make laughter sounds. I thought the beach to which he retired might have been Coney Island. <laughs> it's Westworld meets Enter the Dragon, you know? It's like, I feel like I've seen this before, but it's fun. I definitely dug this as a kid. As soon as he goes in the room and there's skeletons and like a gunslinger robot and Al Capone is there, like all the greatest mobsters are like firing at you, like some shooting gallery. It's really, it brought me back to being like, oh yeah, this is one that I really dug as a kid. What really set it off for Knickknack for me is that he has this antagonistic relationship. It's kind of like a bickering old couple. I'll kill you yet, boss. You know? And I really wonder throughout the movie if Knick-Knack would weep if Scaramanga was killed, because he seems to be respectful. He's not going to kill him himself, and Scaramanga is fostering all these assassination attempts 
But I really wondered if Knickknack might have not been rooting against his boss, which was a dimension we've never seen in a Bond henchman is traitorousness. And that right there made him a more fleshed out character than any before and immediately my favorite henchman. Well, actually, we're going to get that traitorness later in this movie, actually. But for me, with Hervé Villachez and this whole thing about getting the gangster there, I thought Pink Panther. I thought attacking him when he's least expecting it and testing him. I always think Pink Panther, that sort of thing, because it's so Kato. Oh, yeah, Kato did always do that to Clouseau. That is true. I hadn't thought about it that way, but you're right. It's got a little bit of that. If you're an assassin, how do you keep yourself fresh and trigger-happy, etc., by putting people in a funhouse to distract them so you have an easier way to kill them? Wouldn't it be harder to keep your game higher by not having distractions to make this person off his game? So the whole idea of bringing this guy to keep fresh is what I take it to be. It seems kind of anticlimactic to me. Well, the climax of it is, is that he's got a waxwork of James Bond amongst all the killers. You know, Al Capone, Skeleton, Gunslinger. I don't know if it was Billy the Kid or just Nameless Gunslinger. And James Bond. He counts too. He gets his own animatron. He's the one at the very end. I was confused. Do any of these robots actually fire guns? Are they actually have the potential to hurt you, or is it just merely to distract you so that Scaramanga can slide down them stairs and grab his golden gun and shoot you? I don't think they actually shoot. I mean, there's so many times that they come out. I think they make rat-a-tat-tat noises, but I don't think there's any bullets coming out of there. So this is like Chuck E. Cheese, basically. It's like having a gunfight at Chuck E. Cheese. (laughs) Sure. Yeah. Okay. Which, you know, I used to work there. I would have appreciated that, frankly. A gunfight? You should see the way some of those parents behave. (laughs) But it's another intro without Bond, other than a wax statue. Yeah, it's kind of like From Russia with Love. We think we see Bond, but it's a fake Bond. And it concludes on a really weird moment that Scaramanga gets his gun out. He blows off the fingers of Bond. He fires one more time. The camera is on the mannequin from waist up. We know Scaramanga doesn't miss. So what exactly did he shoot that last time? Is it what I think it is? Is this really about inadequacy and who's got the bigger gun? Did he just blow his dick off? Watch the scene again. I did not notice that, but that very well could be the case. I did get a lot of that kind of dick measuring in this entire movie, so... Yeah, I feel like it definitely is about old gunslingers and how they feel about what they're packing. It's made almost literal. The next credit sequence is all those women stroking the barrels and all. I mean, this one really does go there. Yeah, the opening lyrics of that song, I turn to Marjorie and I go, It's a euphemism. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. The lyrics here, I've been touted as the most racy ever, and this one actually had trouble getting radio play because of it. (laughs) All right. You know what? I have already been on record going to rank all the Bond songs. This one is my guilty pleasure. I know that this is not good. Okay? No, it is not. (laughs) I can recognize that lyrically it's embarrassing and musically it kind of sounds like a ripoff of Hey Big Spender. I get it. But I'd be lying if I said that it doesn't make me want to do a kick line in nothing but cowboy boots doing some of where with sparklers. I mean... Please do that, (laughs) and please video it. And we'll post it on nowplaying.com. Do you think it would help with the donations? (laughs) Probably not, actually. Maybe if some of the lady listeners could put it in your (laughs) G-string. 
You know what? I think what it is partly is the staccato notes. They have this like, da, 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 that's like machine gun ratatat. And it's just very energizing. It's very fun. This song is bad, but I kind of love it. So it's going to rank higher than it probably deserves to. I think it's a perfect way to set the tone for this movie. This is trash. That's kind of funny. It's better than Goldfinger, but not by much. Woo! <laughs> All right. I find this song very catchy. Yeah. I'm not saying I like it as much as you do, Stuart, but I was humming the man with the golden gun like all week mm-hmm. long. See, I wasn't humming it so much as it was trapped in my head and wouldn't go away. Yeah. When I played James Bond with my brother growing up, when we had our cassette of Bond themes that we would use to soundtrack our various adventures, this was in heavy rotation. This one was a good one. All right, so Moore's the target this time. We usually think of James Bond being the one in charge, you know, leading a mission. Here he's in retreat. M is pulling him off a case. He's supposed to be looking for this energy expert that's gone AWOL, and instead he's saying, you go hide, you either quit or you go on vacation until we're sure that Scaramanga is not going to kill you because a golden bullet just showed up with your initials carved into it, and you're a wanted man. Haven't we kind of been there, done that, with Bond getting pulled off cases and then going to do them anyway? Oh, we'll get there later on too, Arnie. (laughs) They go to this well a few times. I can only think of one. Only Her Majesty's Secret Service, and not for the same reasons. I mean, that was, Bond, you're being petulant, you're insisting on going after Blofeld when we want you to do something else. Here, Scaramanga is such a badass, we don't think you stand a chance against him. We don't want to put any of our cases in jeopardy of his interference. It's different. They're setting us up and saying, you know what, you are our best agent, but Scaramanga is better than you. And at the end of that sequence... Bond just tells M, I'm going to do it anyway, and it looks like M agrees with him, go find him first, 007. So I take his excuse that pulling him off the cases not to jeopardize the other cases is legitimate because he wants Bond to hunt this guy down so he can get back to work. The problem I have with the plot is this whole solar agitator thing ties in to the Scaramanga thing. Why Scaramanga is involved at all with the solar agitator is weak. How this assignment that he was pulled off of to find the guy actually turned out to be Scaramanga's hit later on. It doesn't play well for me at all. It doesn't play well, meaning it seems like a a huge coincidence, but let's extrapolate it. It may actually make sense. Follow me. I'm going to try. I'm going to really try here. So what we will find out is that Scaramanga is not targeting Bond. Scaramanga is an assassin for hire. You pay him a million dollars, he'll kill whoever you want. Someone has paid him a million dollars to kill an energy expert. Scaramanga's mistress knows all about this. She goes along with him. She rides in his little junk boat wherever he goes. She's in on what he does. She probably knows because Bond is chasing the guy that they're targeting, who Bond is. She thinks he's the man that can rescue her. She's the one that sends the bullet. So that's kind of why that this energy expert is the tie that binds them all, is that maybe she wouldn't have a way to send the bullet to Bond if Bond wasn't working on the case of the man that Scaramanga is going to shoot. That's how I took it as well, was it was because Bond was already circling around Scaramanga that she chose him. But I'll agree that when I was initially watching it, I was with you, Brock. I'm like, this doesn't make sense. It was when I was actually 
going back and writing the plot summary, that it finally clicked. They could have done a better job of showing those connections. But I do feel like a lot of these bonds, certainly diamonds are forever, sometimes the plot is not something you want to focus on. Sometimes they're just like racing through the expository dialogue so that they can get on with the meat of it. Because at the end of the day, I'll agree with you, Brock, it doesn't hang together well. Yeah, it's about how weak it is. It certainly does connect that way. But you have disconnects like... Scaramanga does have the waxwork of James Bond in there, so he has this competition thing going on with Bond already on his own. So that would also give Anders the reason to go after Bond to do that. But you also have Scaramanga wanting the solar agitator for himself for his big facility, so he has his own plans with it. The whole thing, the way the solar agitator turns into Scaramanga's big plot, just seems like so many coincidences, and it hangs on so many little things that, while the plot is certainly just a mechanism for us to get some great Bond action and have fun, it's so weak that it doesn't make it fun for me. It makes it like, oh, this is a bunch of coincidences. Yeah. Well, it should be pointed out that Golden Gun comes to us from the same director as Goldfinger, I do feel like Guy Hamilton is trying to make a similar structural move with the way that he told about Goldfinger, the idea that, oh, for the longest time we think they're going to rob Fort Knox, and then we find out they're going to do something else in Fort Knox and radiate it. They try to do something here, and I agree. The big twist that I was kind of with Scaramanga all the way until we learn that he's trading in his golden gun for a solar-powered laser. That is where I got off the boat, but it is a long time. That is the climax of the film. Most of this movie is Bond following the trail to Scaramanga, meeting him. They don't meet until almost the end of the movie. It's really about him going through, and first he has to go to Lebanon and get a golden bullet out of a belly dancer that 002 was killed in her arms, and he has to prove that Scaramanga was the one that did it. She has the golden bullet, and from that they're able to go to Macau and find the man that makes the bullet. I watched this movie three times for this podcast. Can you explain to me who the thugs are that attack him in the belly dancer's dressing room? I think that they just don't like men to kiss the bellies of their dancers. I think that it's, it's <laughs> overexcited bouncers. I don't know. It's, they needed a fight. I really wish that they hadn't staged it so that you can see the camera in the mirror, but they needed a fight, and that was our first one. I actually didn't see the camera in the mirror, and I was looking for it, but I didn't freeze frame or anything. But there were several mirror shots. Oh, you can see the director sitting in a chair. Like, I mean, it's really bad. <laughs> What's really funny about that, Stuart, is given the funhouse later in the movie and in the beginning of this movie with all those mirrors and things going on. Yeah. They did it so well there that the one shot with a standard mirror, they screw it up. I know. And of course, all of these mirror trick stuff, it should be said, this movie is coming out the year after Enter the Dragon, which had made legendary the evil layer of mirrors. And I want to say, as much as I felt like black exploitation was influencing the last movie with Live and Let Die, I definitely feel like Bruce Lee, Hong Kong martial arts are setting the tone and the feel and the vibe of this golden gun. I completely agree. I got that both from the mirrored rooms at the beginning and then later on when he's inexplicably taken to a dojo. I I understand that they're in China and he is taken captive, but why this energy guy has a dojo full of ninjas was beyond me. But I do love the two school girls who kick ass. It was one of the few times that one of the Bond sex pots, because you got these two little Japanese schoolgirl fetish stereotypes back there, 
And when he tells the girls to run, no, they kick some ass. Oh, yeah. It's a lot of fun to watch. I agree with you. But you're absolutely right, both of you. They actually did it on purpose. Again, instead of setting trends, Bond is now grasping at straws to stay current and find what audience want. And in this situation, they decided to go for the Hong Kong Kung Fu stuff. That was just breaking because of Bruce Lee's movie a few years before. And it kind of feels shoehorned in. Because why would you send him to the dojo? Because it's a James Bond movie. We can't kill him quick. So let's get a big action scene out of it. Hey, you know what? I'm all for it. I like black exploitation. I was fine with where they took it with Live and Let Die. I can go with some martial arts. The problem is here, they're not as good with this stuff as they were with the trinkets and all of the last one. This one requires that you have better support. Someone that can fight. Roger Moore is now 46 years old. I'm pretty sure that he is not even a white belt. And we're going to ask him to go up against black belts and all these ninjas. And this is starting to feel like the Roger Moore movies I feared, which is we're going to cut around the fact that he isn't a particularly physical actor. When he was getting beat up and thrown around, though, it looked like he was there almost the entire time, falling backwards and taking punches and all that kind of thing. No, I agree. On the dojo, I was surprised at how competent it really came across. He was okay. But what my point is that if you're going to follow martial arts, you need to have someone that's good at martial arts. The schoolgirls would be fine if they were the Bond girls, you know, if they were following him around the rest of the movie. But he's given this Chinese assistant. I thought this was their Bruce Lee. I thought that we were going to have some continuous action, karate chopping fun. And really, outside of this dojo scene, this is a martial arts movie with almost no kung fu. I agree. I was ready to give this movie a recommend when the two squirrel girls start kicking ass. I'm like, this is... Enter the secret agent, and I am down with that movie. And any movie that has this scene in it, I have to recommend. We'll see if that actually holds up, but I'll say that my fun of the Kung Fu James Bond film went away very quickly, and I was surprised how it did just disappear. I blame his assistant. He is given Hip, the man that's going to be his Felix for this adventure in Southeast Asia. And I really thought that he was supposed to be Bruce Lee, right? He's supposed to have the charisma and the pizzazz and the moves of someone that's really adept at this kind of stuff. I don't know where they got this guy. I looked at his resume. He doesn't bring any presents. He doesn't have any real good fights. He sucks as an ally. And I think that hurts Roger Moore, who could use a good Kung Fu ally. And I think your instinct is on the nose with having it be one of the women. I mean, we've seen him have tough women with him before. Last movie had a CIA agent. I guess they kind of try to do that with Goodnight later in the movie. But yeah, we'll talk about her in a little bit. But I think if you tied the love interest and the Kung Fu together, I guess they'll do that later with Michelle Yao. Much later, yeah. Yeah, but for now, it felt like too many characters coming and going and too many assistants. You say too many assistants. I say too many ineffectual assistants. All the characters are just bland and they're not really bringing anything to this with the exception of the villain and the henchman. There's just too many people here that were almost interchangeable. Obviously, one's a girl, one's a guy, one's the mistress of the villain. But again, they all seem so bland. Merry Goodnight. Now, I will confess that when I was a kid, there was nothing more hysterical to me than a dumb blonde. That was hilarious. I love Three's Company. I loved Suzanne Summers. That joke never got old. 
oh, what am I doing? And her butt pushes the lever that causes it to misfire. All of that stuff. Hilarious to an eight-year-old boy. <laughs> I look at this now, and I really feel like this is the nadir for Bond girls. I'm wondering if there is going to be one worse than what Britt Eklund is doing here with Goodnight. We gotta get to Denise Richards, but... Haven't seen that one. It's one, you know, it's more recent. I saw it, and so she, to me, is the epitome of bad Bond girls. But this one, I couldn't believe it. At first, when she shows up early on, I thought she was a gag. I thought she was a joke. The way she's in the bed while Bond is seducing another woman, and then she gets shoved in the closet. I thought she was not Bond girl number two. I thought she was not going to be a Bond girl at all. I thought she was Felix Leiter with titties. And they do kind of frame her that way. She's known Bond for two years and they've never consummated. She's holding out for a relationship with him. She doesn't want a one-night stand, which I think is hysterical. Didn't she see how his marriage turned out? (laughs) (laughs) That happened to the other guy. Yeah. When they first introduced her, he said something to her like, now, good night. Would I do that to you? And she said, you're bloody well right. And I thought that was a great way to introduce this character is we don't have to see them meeting each other for the first time. There's a history there. And I thought the way they introduced this character turns out was the highlight of this character for me for the rest of this movie. I did enjoy that scene Arnie referenced about how she was thrown in the closet and all that. That was some fun little farcical stuff. But the actress's limits also showed in those scenes that it didn't make it as enjoyable as it could have been. See, I thought she was fine in those scenes. I couldn't tell what the actress's limits were versus the character's limits and what she was directed to portray. But yes, once she's taken out of the bedroom, any enjoyment I have of her is gone. I've seen Brett Eklund actually in another movie. She was with Christopher Lee in the previous year's horror movie. I guess you could call it a horror movie. It's a cult classic. It's, a, it's Wiccan. It's called The Wicker Man. I, you guys either, have you seen it? I've heard of it. I saw the remake. Ooh. Well, I think she displayed all of her talent in that movie because she spends most of it dancing around a maypole with no shirt on. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm sure that's why she got the gig. Hold on a second. The Wicker Man. Thank you, Stuart. But yes, some of it is the performance here. Some of it's the way that it's written. Some of it is just, we really need someone that is a martial artist or someone that can take him into these exotic locations and sell us on it. And she seems even more out of place than Bond does here in Thailand and Macau and China. Yeah, I mean, to go back to what you were saying about Roger Moore, I'm still liking his performance here, but... He looks uncomfortable in these other locations. When you start putting him in a kimono and everything, he just really looks like, and maybe it's because it was filmed so quickly after the other one, but like he's just a little bit dazed and having trouble getting a hold of himself. But then again, maybe he's actually just really in character and confused as hell that Sheriff Pepper is there. I know I was. Why is Sheriff Pepper there, Brock? Well, you know, it's funny, Arnie. Remember I mentioned to you earlier in this podcast that they were going off the responses, the early responses of the live and let die. And so, again, at first people seemed to like the character. But it seemed like the director and the writer and the producers liked the character so much and enjoyed the shenanigans so much that they thought it would be great to bring him back. Never mind that that character probably wouldn't take a trip to Thailand. He might go to Graceland, but he probably wouldn't go to Thailand. (laughs) No, and if I was having uncomfortable moments with him calling black men boys, I was even more uncomfortable with him calling Thais pointy heads and little brown water hogs. Yeah, 
like I said in the last podcast, he had his moments of humor last time. Here he did not. And every minute he was on screen was like fingernails on a chalkboard for me. He gets two scenes, by the way. He's on a boat and gets thrown into the water by an elephant. And then later he gets in the spectacular car chase. I blame this director. He can't get enough of this. I say go make a convoy movie. Go make Smoking and the Bandit. Go make that movie if you are so in love with this character. He does not fit into this Bond adventure. He didn't fit in the last one. He's really out of place here. Yeah. And again, like the last one, if it had stopped with the elephant... It wouldn't have been ruinous. But when he's in that entire car chase and I've been deputized. Oh, my God. But the thing is, I agree with you that when they flash back to him, it's very hard to swallow. But the stunt work in that rest of that scene, especially the stunt, is so much fun to watch that I can just cut him out in my mind and just see what I like to see in that car chase scene. It didn't ruin the car chase for me at all. It made me want to hit somebody when he kept on going on the screen, but thankfully they left him at the side of the road and didn't tell us where he went. He ruined the scene for me like a side of pubes on a steak. Wow. God. Wow. That's really nauseous. Yeah, that's, and thank you. <laughs> wonderful visual. Thank you. I, <laughs> I mean, seriously, the stunt, if it wasn't bad enough that Pepper was in the scene, when the car does its loop-de-loop, they bring in a slide whistle. Yeah, it's a penny whistle, but yeah, and <laughs> oh, forgive yeah, me. Yeah, no, no, I, I said it on purpose because I really wanted to find out why they put that in there because it really upstages the stunt. It's stupid to put that in there because the stunt's amazing. That's remarkable. And John Barry, who is the composer, he's the one who put it in. The producer told him to take it out, and I guess he relented after an argument or something and left it in. And later on, he concedes that he should have taken it out because honestly, it's stupid to have it in there, and you can think the director would love that because given that he put pepper in there the slide whistle or penny whistle whatever the hell it is it would seem to work but yeah come on it takes away from this amazing 360 barrel roll of a car a real car remarkable stunt yeah the entire way this scene was staged made me go yep car did a barrel roll i want this over please pepper again ruined this and i in the last one i was still enjoying the car stunts i was still enjoying the boat stunts here I wasn't enjoying anything at all. Well, see, now we're finally getting to where I thought I would have to face Bond. It's a really tight corner. We know that Bond is absurd. We know that he has been in lots of adventures, some of which I really enjoyed. You Only Live Twice. Just outlandish, on top of outlandish scene, in that a successive series of ridiculousness, highly enjoyable. So why isn't this one the same thing? It is just as outlandish. It is just as crazy. And I do feel like part of the problem is they know that they want to be funny. It plays better when you have Connery just kind of smirking his way through it and no one is calling it out. When you have sound effects and this Pepper character underlying, suddenly you're announcing, oh, isn't this funny? I feel like I'm being nudged in the ribs. Like, it's no longer telling me a funny story. I feel like they have overstepped their bounds. They have taken Fantastical Bond and now even they don't take it seriously anymore. There's nothing to take serious here. Remember I've said earlier that even Bond fans have limits to this sort of absurdity and things in the tone. And this movie, I think, Stuart, all these elements that you would think would work in a James Bond movie are here, a lot of the elements anyway. The tone of it is just one, I think you hit the nail on the head. I think it's because they're going for that sort of funniness in this scene. But I think really, Stuart, they're searching for identity. And the problem is when they go to a kung fu movie for 
a big portion of the movie, and then they go to the comedy, the slapstick comedy. They have no idea what they want. They just want to throw everything in there and hope it works, as opposed to realizing, you know what, we're doing a James Bond movie here. Yeah. And that's, I think, the problem here, that the fun is not there because they're forgetting it's a James Bond movie, as opposed to what's popular with the kids nowadays. And Arnie, you mentioned that Moore looks a little lost here. I tend to agree with you. I'm starting to see him as sort of the Adam West Bond, you know, the one that is going to make it a joke, and it's all about the one-liners here. But they ask him to do some stuff here that's kind of unforgivable. I mean, one kid helps him fix the boat, and then he throws him off. I wasn't cool with that. And then when he wants to get information out of Andrus, he actually, like, twists her arm and, like, slaps her around. They write the character a little too brutal to play along... But this silly stuff, it does feel tonally all over the map. And I think even more is having trouble finding the comedy in some of these darker moments. Yeah, and we've seen Connery do that to a woman as well. But you're right, the tone and the consistent Bond character, when Connery was doing it, you could see why it would work there. Especially for Russia with Love, I think we talked about it mm-hmm. there. But here, it just seems out of place considering a lot of other things that are going on. But he's not completely lost, Stuart. There's that scene with the... Gunmaker, Lazar, the nice self-contained scene. I thought Roger Moore had the right balance there between threatening and humorous tone. I think that scene completely worked. I liked it. I liked his performance in it. I was still very much with the movie on this, coasting on a lot of goodwill from Live and Let Die. But in the end, that scene was kind of pointless. It was a functional scene to get Bond to his next location, but it wasn't a standout for anything other than it didn't suck as much as what was coming. (laughs) Well, they had that great line at the end of it, speak now, forever hold your peace. I thought that was a great line, and how he delivered it was straight. You know, as opposed to smirking with it, he actually was threatening the guy, and he made a punny joke to go with it. I tell you, he and Adam West, I feel like they got a similar vibe going on. But what's most curious to me is that what we'll eventually find out is that Scaramanga has no beef with Bond at all. He isn't interested in Bond, and he admires him, but he is not going to target him. That was a misdirect, and that all he wants is the Solex and to move on. And really, it's good night that keeps forcing Bond into the bad situations and escalating the problems. Scaramanga himself, as a villain, is kind of weak. And I also think, I don't know, you cited Christopher Lee as a good thing here. I think Christopher Lee looks a little weak here. I know they wanted to get an actor that was similar in age to Moore and that they would be maybe seen as equals. I think Lee looks really weak and in doing so makes Moore look weak. I don't think that he looks weak. And I actually felt for most of this movie that I loved is almost doppelganger status with Bond, like an evil Bond, just as talented. The going with the right age worked for me. You know, I'm seeing Christopher Lee in his 80s fighting Yoda with a lightsaber, and I bought it. So, to me, (laughs) the fact is, he's not a fist fighter. He pulls a trigger on a gun. He doesn't have to be buff. He came across as agile enough. I liked his facial expressions. I really did like his portrayal of Scaramanga as a villain. What I didn't like was the whole power plant operation. The fact that his admiration for Bond when they have that scene at the boxing match and they have the conversation where it's great where Tattoo has the gun and the peanuts. I like many things about that scene. But what bothers me is he's got this waxwork dummy of Bond that he takes pleasure in shooting 
But he's like, I have no problem with you, Mr. Bond. Go your way, I'll go mine. And he seemed like he couldn't commit to an act of evil. We're saying the same thing here, Arnie. That's what I'm saying, is that at the end of the day, it's only because Goodnight is so stupid and gets it all mixed up and winds up in his trunk that this becomes a problem. They could have gotten away with the Solex, no problems, nobody else got shot with the golden gun except the woman we didn't like, Octopussy, and we would have been fine. But stupid Goodnight, she had to screw it all up. Arnie, I'm glad to hear you got the doppelganger thing, because that was the original intention of the character, to be a dark side James Bond. And I do think the script during rewrites kind of went away from that. They hinted at it, and I think it's very inconsistent here. And I do like what Christopher Lee does with the role. I completely agree, and I think I said earlier in the show about how it ties in is weak because it doesn't make any sense to me, and it's not satisfying. Even if they make it make sense, it's not a satisfying way for this villain, this assassin guy. I'd rather see him try to be James Bond on the other side of the coin and have that be the plot than have him connected with this Solex agitator thing. Because it's infinitely more interesting to have a dark side James Bond than to have him want to have a way to do what Blofeld does and hold the world ransom to the highest bidder to get this power. It doesn't make much sense for this character to do it, but I can't knock Christopher Lee because I'm enjoying him in his performance. Yeah, that's where I'm at. Well, then I'm going to be alone in this. I'm going to knock Christopher Lee. I just feel like he's miscast. I feel like I would have enjoyed a more physical actor in this role. And I was trying to think of who could work for me. Like, who at that point in time would be of similar age, similar doppelganger. The one that I came to I really liked, Charles Bronson. He was almost the same age as Lee, but has had a long history playing sharpshooters and westerns and such. And you would have believed him as a crack shot. You would have believed and been scared of him. And there's just something about Ashen, Juan, Christopher Lee taking a shirt off and showing a third nipple that just kind of turns my stomach. Probably too soon for this. Probably they weren't ready for the meta, but... How about, you know, Sean Connery? Oh. I thought about that one, too. Yeah, but, yeah, he wasn't working. He wasn't doing any Bonds, good guy or bad guy. But who wouldn't enjoy Moore versus Connery? I was thinking Clint Eastwood when yeah. you were talking, that he'd be a lot of fun here. Yeah, Steve McQueen, Lee Marvin. There were lots of tough guys at this time. The thing is, I think that they would have been expensive. And this movie looks like it was kind of done on the cheap. I don't know. It feels that way. And we're only a couple of years from Christopher Lee doing TV Captain America, so he obviously was chief. Yes. And a couple of years before Hervé does Fantasy Island, this is the role that broke him, right? This is what got him the gig on Fantasy Island. He wasn't Tattoo yet. No. But I really feel like Nick Knack is the one that's carrying this. Like, I'm getting more malevolence and more of the kind of funny, kind of intimidating out of him than I'm getting out of Christopher Lee. And it's the problem of watching Mini-Me carry Dr. Evil. It doesn't work. You want to be afraid of evil James Bond. You don't want the dwarf to be the bigger threat. And the dwarf could have killed James Bond if High Fat didn't stop him, which was... I thought an awesome moment in the movie. I'm like, wow, he got him. <laughs> yeah, I wish they had played up more of that. The fact that people didn't think much of him because he was short, and then he would play that to his advantage. You know, he pretends to be a statue and then conks him with the trident. And yeah, all oh, that's cool. I really could have gone with, you know, a knickknack that was bigger. But then again, he isn't the main bad guy. But that's what I'm liking about Nick Knack, is that he feels competent. You so could have written the little person role as a joke. But to me, he actually feels as dangerous as Scaramanga, and that's what I love about that performance here. Yeah, agreed. You said that it was a cool scene for Nick Knack to pretend to be a statue and then 
fool everybody. And they do that a lot in this movie. With the waxwork in the beginning of the movie with James Bond in the funhouse, it completely telegraphs the end of the movie. And it really destroys the climax of the two of them facing off. If this entire movie is about the two of them being doppelgangers, or at least the part of the movie that was supposed to be about the two of these being doppelgangers and two equals fighting head-to-head, they cut their legs out from underneath them by having that wax work in the beginning of the movie. I agree completely. The whole climax, I'm like, so when's he going to switch places with the dummy? Let's watch for the fingers. When's he going to switch places with the dummy? I got confused anyway, because some of these robots are played by real people, so it was hard to tell when they were robots and when they were real people. Where did he get the gun? The climax of the film, okay, we're going to have our duel. They walk the 20 paces... Scaramanga disappears into his secret lair, and Bond goes chasing after. He drops the Walter PPK. He has no weapon. Uh, Literally, how did he shoot him at the end? I don't understand. I thought that the wax statue, which is different than the Chuck E. Cheese animatronics, might have had a real Walter PPK since Scaramanga was, you know, so specific. Me with my golden gun, you with your PPK. Okay, so the robots could kill. No, the robots couldn't kill, but the wax statue could. Bond never moved. Bond was not like the others. He wasn't animatronic. Oh. Right, he was a wax. And so he took the clothes off him also. He was mm-hmm. able to, because he's clearly not wearing the same outfit. He took the clothes off, took the gun, and uses Walther and kills him. Oh, okay. Well, I'll buy that, but yeah. But it's confusing. I had to guess. Then what do you do with the dummy? It's like, did he melt it down? Like, how? Like I had that same question. I wanted a scene that showed the dummy in a closet or something. Right. And Nick Nack's watching all of this on camera. I don't know. It's silly. And yes, it's not very satisfying, but okay. It would have been better since he's under the funhouse if he'd used that as a distraction and then fired up through the floor and never dropped his gun. Yeah. You know, something like that. But you know what? I would have accepted this as the ending. I think that it probably could have been a little bit more exciting if you had more physical actors. Charles Bronson, Clint Eastwood, it would have been something. What I really don't like is the climax atop this one, where they have to get the Solex out of the laser. What is even going on here? Is this worth even digging into? It's really stupid slapstick is what it is. Terribly, and once Scaramanga is killed, the movie's over. It should be. He's the man with the golden gun. Yeah. The second climax is ludicrous about this laser weapon and power solenoid flex capacitor (laughs) that is going to make oil obsolete and piss off the car makers. (laughs) I mean, they actually say that in the movie, too. I'm not just hypothesizing here. And so I just really wanted it over. And the more Goodnight screwed things up, I'll say this. When Scaramanga was killed, I'm like, there's some good things. Do I recommend or some bad things? Do I not recommend? And then the movie continued and sealed its fate. Yeah, I'm with you. I was okay with the slightly unsatisfactory shootout with Man with the Golden Gun, but it just keeps going. And then it becomes, again, yet again, as much of the second half of this movie is about how stupid Goodnight is. Yeah, and they also, again, they tied in the whole Solex thing to Scaramanga so they have this big set so they can blow it up like they do in other James Bond movies. But, you know, we were all in wonder and awe of that wonderful volcano set and how cool that was, and the Fort Knox set was looked pretty cool. Here, who cares about this giant solar energy thing? Yes, at the time, there was the energy crisis of the 70s, so it was, might have been topical, but it doesn't play. It, it, who cares about this whole big laser thingy? No, the laser's not going to blow anything up. Let's make this clear. The laser's not pointed at anything. It's not going to do any harm. They could literally just throw a switch and walk away, and the whole place would blow up. 
and who cares? There's nothing at stake here other than Goodnight keeps flipping it with her ass. <laughs> no, the other thing at stake is because the island's going to blow up, they need to get the solenoid or whatever it is because it's the only one and thus it will cure the energy crisis. He's solving global problems. Yes, which, where is that, by the way? I'm waiting. I think that they wrote themselves into a corner here. They probably should have said, oh, we blew it up. Q couldn't figure it out. Yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. <laughs> he decided rather than cure the world's energy crisis, he'd use it to put a laser in a wristwatch. Yeah. It's actually buried in this big box in this big room with the Ark of the Covenant and everything else. That's basically where it is. It's Superman taking the nuclear missiles and throwing it into the sun. It doesn't matter. <laughs> they could solve a world problem, but somehow they don't. You write yourself into a hole like that, there's no way you can come out of it. And then, of course, Hamilton is never satisfied without having another climax in which the lovers are in jeopardy. Goodnight and Bond are finally going to consummate, and the mirrored ceiling opens up, and we see Knickknack. And this pissed me off because I loved Knickknack. Knickknack had been the golden boy of the Golden Gun. But one of the things I liked about him is he felt self-deterministic, and he kept going, If he dies, this is all mine. But... I had just thought he really, I guess because the island blew up, maybe he was pissed because he lost his fun house and all that was supposed to be his was destroyed, but... No, he was crying over Scaramanga dying. I, all that was a ruse. It's kind of like how you tease somebody and say you hate him and all of that, but at the end of the day, he really loves Scaramanga, and I think that he was getting vengeance on yeah. him. I really think that he wanted to kill Bond at that moment for taking out Scaramanga. If that's the case, Bond should have done knick-knack the justice of killing him like he killed all the others. But no, because he's a little person, we're going to just net him up because that's so much more dignified. I totally agree. That they throw him in a suitcase and then tie him in the crow's nest is not right. They should have killed him. Yep. They've killed every other henchman. If they're trying to be more sensitive because he's a little person and it's not cool for Bond to kill someone whom he can so easily overpower then... You're doing it wrong. Yeah, either give him a laser and Bond has to shoot him in the head, or B, don't end it by basically pantsing the man on a boat. Yeah. Yeah, have him in an airplane attacking the boat and Bond has to shoot the airplane down so it's not directly killing him, it's directly killing the vehicle to kill him. Yeah. Something like that, yeah. He could have slashed Bond's knees and Bond would have had to, like, crawl for the fight scene. I mean, there's ways of staging it. They definitely could have made it a more fair fight. I never up until this point saw his knick-knack as being weak, and you're right, by seeing him reduced to being hung at the top of the ship so Bond can continue on with his love making with that obnoxious girl, then yeah, it's not the way I wanted this to go. I will say that it left me with one hope, and it was that maybe in the next movie, two of my favorite henchmen, Baron Samdi and Knickknack, would team up and be the supervillains. Oh, that's true. The Baron is still around. That is another one that lived to the end. I had forgotten about him. You're right. And maybe they can go kill J.W. Peppa. <laughs> <laughs> one can only dream. So, Stuart, Arnie, do you recommend The Man with the Golden Gun? Stuart. Well, you know, I'm in a weird state here. I know that this is a hated, hated film, and I kind of want to protect it, because as a kid, I loved all this stuff. I think it plays well to children. I think it's silly and goofy, and there's stuff here that I still, to this day, enjoy. I have a quantum of affection for it, but mostly due to nostalgia. This is pretty bad. I will fully admit why this one fails where... A movie just as ridiculous as You Only Live Twice Gloriously Succeeds is it feels slow. 
the campiness and the fun feels like something that's being told to us by people that are bored or incompetent are not imbuing this with the kind of energy it needs. You can't have a martial arts movie where nobody can fight and nothing occurs. And I'm not talking about Moore. I think Moore does okay here. He did pretty good last time. He's continuing to tread water, but he needed life support. And the people around him let Bond down. He's got a weaker villain. He's got a weak sidekick with Lieutenant Hip, a terrible Bond girl, both of them. At the end of the day, this is a flaccid movie. And so I got to say, the nicest thing I can say about it, it's much better than Diamonds Are Forever. I think I like it a little bit better than Thunderball, to be honest. But it's not good, and I'm not going to recommend it. Arnie. Yeah, Stuart, you ended by saying the movies you like this better than, but started by saying this is one of the most hated Bond films. And I can't see this as the most hated because, I mean, it's not any secret. This is not not recommend for me. I've made that clear. But up until the end, I really was on the fence with this because there's a lot of problems. The movie's uneven. The movie is poorly paced. The villain isn't villainous enough, but there was a lot of good like Christopher Lee's performance, Roger Moore's performance, and Knickknack is my now favorite up until the end. Hervé outdoes Oddjob as my favorite henchman now. So it had some really good things going for it, and despite the fact that I'm like, they already did that Golden Gun thing, I really like that it breaks down into all these various components. I like the way it's used. I like that Scaramanga has a bit of an uprising and decides he wants to go global and become a power broker instead of an assassin. There's good things here, but to go back to my previous vulgar analogy, there's some things that ruin it, and Pepper is one of them, and the fact that it goes on too long at the end is the other. I would think that so much about humor is balance and timing, and in this one, they're really, again, playing up the intentional comedy, but the timing is off, and the humor is rank. What they thought was working for them in Live and Let Die with Pepper, here is poison. And good night, game over. Not recommend. There are a lot of components in this movie that I do like. There are a lot of individual scenes I do like. I do get my Bond moments here. But unlike last time where there was enough fun for me to give it a weak recommend, this movie is lacking the fun. There's nothing fun here. It is boring. Nothing here seems like it's original. They throw new things in here, but it just seems like, who cares? This entire movie. And so I'm giving this a not recommend. I did not hate it as much as Stuart has let on that people hate this movie. I didn't hate it that badly. I just did not like it. There's plenty here to like in Nuggets. But overall, this movie does not add up at all. So I take a pass on this one. You're not going to miss a thing with the man with the golden gun. Yeah, I think we're all saying the same thing here. We're going to pull the trigger on man with the golden gun. I'm wondering if how much a part of this is the fact that they're just nine ones in. You know, think of any franchise. Are they any good nine installments in? This is the point where Jason is thinking about going to outer space. And I don't think Bond's far behind him here. I think that you get desperate. You start grabbing other trends. You start looking at other things. They had to be thinking 12 years after Dr. No that this had run its course, right? This kind of 
feels like you've done all you can do. It's amazing me to think that we've got 15 more of these things still to come. I would agree with you if the next movie was Moonraker. Because the next movie, I think we're going to get returning back to more of the traditional what makes Bond work. But definitely in the 70s, James Bond was definitely jumping on trend. But I think we should wait on that until after we finish the next movie and see. It's been a long time since I've seen the next movie. So I want to make sure that my answer to you on this is completely accurate. So I think we should revisit that at the end of the next podcast. For me, my memory, and this is a memory that I had that only now just, you know, must have been repressed and came back to me when you said the word Moonraker, is that when I did watch all these Bond films back then, I remembered them starting at a certain level and dipping to a very low low when, is it Jaws with the silver teeth starts showing up? Yes. Is that his name? That's his name. And then I remember it clawing its way out of the depths. So perhaps this is what I saw as the start of that steep decline and perhaps as happy as I was last podcast to see the Roger Moore era it may be octopusy or view to a kill before I recommend one again if my memory holds but I didn't even remember that Mr. Big and Kananga were the same guy so we'll see how good my memory was well, it did take three years for another Bond movie to happen after this one. One of the reasons is this one tanked at the box office. Remember last time I said Live and Let Die was very popular. Again, I have to think it's the curiosity factor. But we would be remiss if we don't mention one of the reasons it took three years is not just because it was a flop, but was because they were in legal troubles with Kevin McClory over Blofeld and Spectre. That was, that's going to be continuing on into the 80s. Well, I guess we can talk about it more next time. That'll be next Tuesday. We are, instead of doing Bond on Fridays now, we are going to get kicked off with Romero Dead, starting with Friday's Night of the Living Dead, 1968. Can't wait for that one. I hope you guys can find the money and join us then. All the details are available at nowplayingpodcast.com on how to donate. And also this week, I'll be giving you my thoughts on the fifth Ian Fleming, James Bond novel. That's Dr. No. Remember that movie? Well, we're finally getting to the book. (laughs) (laughs) I do remember that movie. Yes, that was just a few weeks ago. Now playing will return with a spy who loved me. That sounds like a dismissal. I was rather looking forward to breakfast. Thank you for listening to this episode of the now-playing James Bond Retrospective Series. Job's done. The bitch is dead. At our website, nowplayingpodcast.com, you can find the other episodes in the James Bond series, as well as other series such as The Avengers, Batman, Spider-Man, Predator, Rocky, Rambo, and many more. I thought Christmas only comes once a year. You will also find individual movie reviews such as Green Lantern, Cowboys and Aliens, Avatar, and Scott Pilgrim vs. the World. Talk here, listen here. So that's what I've been doing wrong all these years. While at NowPlayingPodcast.com, be sure to join our forums where you can discuss this show with other listeners. Shame. We barely got to know each other. You can also follow Now Playing on Facebook and Twitter, where the hosts post new episode announcements and written movie reviews. Just do as I say, will you? Yes, James. The links to our social media pages can be found at nowplayingpodcast.com. I take it that this is not a social call, 007. Correct. You should have brought lilies. Support from listeners like you help keep Now Playing operating. 
Em really doesn't mind you earning a little money on the side. She'd just prefer it if it wasn't selling secrets. You can find a link to donate using PayPal at the bottom of our website, nowplayingpodcast.com. So you put your money where your mouth is. You can also show your love of Now Playing Podcast by shopping in our store, where you can buy t-shirts, totes, boxers, coffee mugs, teddy bears, and much more. Well, that's quite a nice little nothing you're almost wearing. I approve. Now Playing's James Bond retrospective series is edited by Alex, Ray, Phil, Dylan, Jason, Jeff, Brock, and Arnie. One rises to meet a challenge. Now Playing is not affiliated with MGM UA Entertainment Company, Columbia Pictures, or Warner Brothers Pictures, and no infringement is intended. That depends on your definition of safe sex. The opinions expressed on Now Playing are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinion of Venganza Media Incorporated. This never happened to the other fellow. Now Playing is a Venganza Media production, copyright 2012, all rights reserved. I assume you have no regrets. I don't. What about you? Of course not. That would be unprofessional. Today we're talking about the man with the golden gun. Talking about me? Is that a euphemism? And this is Arnie, the man with the golden mic. I'm not kidding. It was expensive, but it's amazing what you can find on eBay. For her life and hope the bullet would cause 007 to kill Scaramanga. I am not pronouncing his name the same twice, am I? <laughs> I don't know, but I love hearing the name. It's like my favorite sound. <laughs> It'll be a running gag throughout the show. Yeah, according to Wiki, it's called Super Numerary. Uh-huh. Good I luck sure. with that one. <laughs> <laughs> I remember it as a gag in Kevin Smith's Mallrats where, what's not Chrissy's, the roommate from Three's Company? Oh, God. The drunk. Janet. Yeah. She displayed all of her talent in that movie because she spends most of it dancing around a maypole with no shirt on. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm sure that's why she got the gig. Hold on a second. The Wicker Man. Thank you, Stuart. By the way, you know the really big bosomed, uh, what was her name, Plenty? I did go Google her Playboy spread after we were done with that <laughs> podcast. <laughs> it's worth Googling. <laughs> Lana Wood. Now, I tell you, he and Adam West, I feel like they got a similar vibe going on. <laughs> I don't think Batman would say, speak now, forever hold your peace, though. <laughs> as he's holding a battering to his face. I don't know. Oh, yeah. Speak now or forever hold your peace. I could see that. Yeah. That was more Shatner. Yeah, a little bit. (laughs) (laughs) If he dies, this is all mine. And I'm sorry for for doing that horrible French accent. Is he French? (laughs) I think he's French. I never got that until this movie. He says monsieur a lot. I'm not sure, but yeah. (laughs) Maybe French-Canadian, but... Didn't even remember that Mr. Big and Kawasaki, what's his name? Scaramanga? Kananga? Kananga. Kananga. 